Welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number 137, recorded on the 1st of October 2019. Are you listening on Apple Podcasts? If so, please pause this episode and take a minute to leave us a rating or review on the platform. We will wait for you here. This would be an enormous help. Thank you so much for doing this. So today we are going to talk about Unbabel's funding round, about the EU's dependence on outside technology, the cap table issues in the Nordics, the mysterious $1 billion fund that apparently never was, and much more. We will also run a conversation with Carly Kind, the director of Ada Lovelace Institute. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today again finally by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, I missed you last time so much. Uh, I miss you too, Andre. It's great to be back on the podcast and to be back speaking to you live. So we've got a bunch of stuff lined up for today, but first... Uh... A word uh, about our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference that's coming to Berlin on November 4th to 7th. The conference is the only conference out there that focuses exclusively on software architecture and the evolution of that role. The conference covers complex topics from microservices and serverless to domain-driven design and application architecture, as well as the soft skills needed to navigate different communication styles. Get your tickets on O'Reilly SA con.com slash tech uh, listeners of the tech eu podcast can get something extra and that would be 20 percent off of most of the passes just use the code tech eu 20 during registration that's tech eu 20 during registration at the website that is o'reilly sacon.com slash tech now let's get to the stories and uh, i wanted to talk about uh, the a funding round, one of the biggest uh, funding rounds of uh, past year, that would be the one that Unbabel raised. It's a Portuguese-born translation startup, and it raised uh, 60 million US dollars in funding. And the round uh, was led by Point72 Ventures, uh, with eVentures, Greycroft, and Indico Capital Partners investing along. In total, Unbabel has raised 91 million US dollars so far, which is quite a good number for a European startup, I'd say. So what is Unbabel all about? Uh, simply speaking, it is a platform where you have companies that need translation on one end and then freelance translators on the other end, right? So what's interesting, though, is that the platform seems to be catering first of all to content like customer service messages which need to be turned around very quickly and i think that like the quickest turnaround time uh, there is about 10 minutes so unbabel achieves this uh, high speed in two ways first it breaks each piece down into micro tasks and then these micro tasks are distributed to different translators and uh, second uh, unbabel uses machine assisted translation which uh, simply speaking means that all the texts are first processed by a translation engine like google translate but they're probably using something proprietary and after that humans uh, only need to edit the machine uh, translation Vasco Pedro, the CEO of Unbabel, said that the platform sees over 1 million translated customer service messages per month. Uh, there are some 55,000 registered freelance translators on Unbabel, and uh, its clients include names like Microsoft, Facebook, Booking.com, and EasyJet. 
I personally like the vision of uh, AI as something that would augment uh, humans rather than replacing them. And I think that this is much more likely to happen in the short and medium term uh, rather than uh, all the scary stories that uh, nearly everyone on this planet are going to lose their jobs uh, to artificial intelligence. So uh, this augmentation scenario, I think, makes sense. And I guess it's, it's also fair. But at the same time, I have to mention that uh, this uh, whole idea of machine-assisted translation is not something new or innovative per se. Uh, myself, uh, I did spend uh, a few years, uh, a long time ago, working as a freelance translator on a very similar platform. Uh, so we would also get uh, this uh, pre-translated sort of stuff that we would uh, then uh, have to edit. And my take here is that it certainly helps to cut the cost because it takes you much less time to process uh, these uh, translations. But also it drives the translation quality down. Also, it's a pretty tedious work because... Uh, it just you, you just keep doing one thing all the time, but certainly it's not the worst kind of job out there. So when you need to edit a machine translation, you are already, as a translator, constrained uh, by the sentence structure that you've got from the computer translation, and you don't normally have the time to think about it and uh, maybe rewrite the whole thing from scratch in a way that it, that would sound better. So the second issue I see with uh, Unbabel is that it simply doesn't pay very well. And uh, uh, same as most uh, gig economy platforms out there, it's certainly not something that you could do for a living. From what I have gathered uh, from uh, Googling around and reading some quarter threads, I see that a translator's uh, wage, and they actually call translators editors uh, because machine-assisted translation. So this wage starts at uh, $8 per hour, and then it's capped at uh, $18 per hour. And I'm pretty sure that not too many people actually get the highest rate possible. Uh, and it also depends on how popular your language pair is. Also, the, we need to mention that there are editors and there are senior editors. And the latter are the ones that are checking the translator's output before it's fed back uh, to the customer. So I would expect senior editors be the ones uh, getting uh, wages at the higher side of the range. So as a client, you probably won't uh, find uh, very sophisticated and professional translators on Unbabel, but I'm sure it's more than enough for the customer communication needs uh, that it targets, first of all. So what I'm less sure about is how this gig economy is different uh, from that of, let's say, Uber. And if we think that Uber drivers should be treated as companies' employees if they work full-time, uh, then should we say the same thing about freelancers working on Unbabel or similar platforms? I, I, I'm obviously not sure what the right answer uh, here should be. Natalie, do you have any take on this at all? Yeah, so I, I think it's a, an interesting point that you raised about kind of suggesting that the, the pay isn't very high, but it certainly is much higher than, say, if you were hiring some one of these people on Mechanical Turk or Fiverr or Upwork or any of these other platforms. So I think by specializing in translation and, and then also having the machine learning AI doing some of the work there, it, it does take away some of, of the, the work for the translator. Um, I haven't had any um, experience with that myself, but doing some editing of kind of English as foreign language, it's, it, it is helpful. But I, I met Vasco last year at the Pioneers Festival. I interviewed him there. He's a super impressive guy, and he's really done so much for the Portuguese startup ecosystem. And I really respect um, kind of his work there. One of the first founders from Southern Europe to be accepted to Y Combinator, um, and he's been very generous with his network and helping 
kind of shine a light on some of the really exciting startups coming out of that part of Europe. So understanding kind of the gig economy, we're not going to be able to solve that now, but I think Unfable or Unfavel, however, however we, we pronounce the, the company name, I think it's, it's a real, a great example um, of a, a smart European startup in this climate and um, it'll be interesting to see what they do with this new financing. Yeah, it is for sure interesting. What I actually don't like uh, in general is that they call machine translation AI. I don't think it is. Uh, like you, you kind of, as a startup, want to include AI in all your uh, press releases and uh, in all your communications. But I mean, machine tra- machine assisted translation is not is not that. I would say. Anyway, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm very happy for this uh, European success, uh, obviously, and I do think that they are doing a good job, and I do think that what comes out of it is very adequate to the needs of uh, their customers. Anyway, Natalie, what was uh, what was your segment for today? I see the amount of notes that you have prepared, and I'm already scared. Well, don't be too scared. But I just wanted to follow up on something that is an ongoing story this time of year, um, especially because over the last few weeks, we've been touching on the new president-elect of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, and her nominees for the top post at the commission. And what those announcements might mean for European tech moving forward. Well, as we're taping this, the European Parliament has been having a look at the nominees and the first step of the approval process. And unfortunately for you, Andre, Maria Gabriel, the nominee for Commissioner for Innovation and Youth, who you're not the biggest fan of, she sailed through her, quote, marathon hearing yesterday um, really successfully, according to observers. And at the hearing, she mentioned that she is planning to work with the VP nominee, Margaret Vestiger, and Commissioner-designate for Internal Market, Sylvie Goulard, to work out a new European industrial strategy. So this is a really interesting development. Um, but the Parliament's Legal Affairs Committee has voted to reject two of von der Leyen's other chosen commissioners, um, the commissioner-elect from a uh, designate from Romania and also from Hungary over potential conflicts of interest. So the von der Leyen Commission is planning to take office one month from now, so November 1st. So a lot can happen between then and now. So she'll be nominating two new delegates and stay tuned on that front. But this week, I wanted to highlight a leak of sorts that has come from von der Leyen's transition committee which was obtained by Bloomberg, which I think could be pretty illustrative of how this commission might be positioning itself when it comes to European tech. So if this leaked document is accurate, it looks to have some pretty significant consequences for the technology sector here. Bloomberg reports that it is in possession of an internal policy document that has been produced by the European Commission's Directorate General for Communications, Networks, Content, and Technology. The 23-page document warns that Europeans, Europe's core values and influence are at risk from an over-reliance on hardware and software produced by other countries. According to the quotes that were released by Bloomberg, the language used in the piece at times can be quite alarming, suggesting that, quote, Europe's position and influence in global markets will be eroded, affecting European leadership and jeopardizing our technological sovereignty in key 
industrial strategic value chains, end quote. It goes on to suggest developing more public-private partnerships in the technology sector, as well as tapping into new marketplaces in the Balkans and in Africa. Ultimately, the document suggests that deploying these technologies will lead to 2.3 trillion euros in economic growth by 2030. The document obtained by Bloomberg continues to highlight the tensions between the United States and the Chinese conglomerate Huawei that took place over the summer, and Europe was vulnerable to finding itself in the middle of further disputes without further developing and utilizing its own technologies. To develop this would require significantly more investment than is currently happening, which is telling because a leak several weeks back teased a potential solution, this so-called 100 billion European futures fund, which we mentioned on the podcast. So in response, Ursula von der Leyen's spokesperson and the commission itself have not confirmed these rumors, and they've been quite cagey about it. So in the case of the most recent piece by Bloomberg, they've shared they do not respond to leaks. And in the case of the European Future Fund, as shared by Politico, they say it is the first time they've ever heard about it. So where do we go from here? We have two leaked documents from the president-elect's transition team being reported by two reputable publications. It brings up a number of questions here as to what exactly are the president-elect's plans when it comes to technology and why they're not being more clear about their strategy here. It is interesting because should they move forward with these plans, it would drastically change the tech landscape, but also possibly lead to greater regulations when it comes to using outside technology. Would it also lead to fewer opportunities for outside investment in European tech? These sorts of things are speculative, but they do, in some respects, make me a bit concerned. Similarly, on the case of the leaker, we have two leaked documents here. What are the goals here and what else out there that's still to know? I'll be completely honest here and stepping away from tech for a moment, one of the new vice president positions at the commission who holds the portfolio for migration, which has been renamed protecting the European way of life. Um, despite von der Leyen's defense, the contrary, it has been called by critics, including Daniel Trilling, writing in The Guardian, that the new portfolio title is a, quote, gift to the far right, end quote, and that the characterization of the vice president's brief will fuel nationalist sentiment. To this aim, the French far right leader, Marine Le Pen, endorsed the new portfolio, suggesting it was, quote, an ideological victory, end quote. So as a non-European person living and working in Europe, the portfolio in name only and the potential of building a, quote, fortress Europe around the technology used here makes me feel uneasy and not entirely comfortable. And being totally honest and something that I've always appreciated about Europe living and working here for more than a decade now and being married to a European is its diversity across the continent, and also its openness to being part of the global community, being in dialogue and in trade with the entire world. I realize it's an incredible privilege for me to live here, but I would certainly feel much better and have more confidence if the president-elect would be more transparent about her goals 
and aims for European tech, respond to these leaks directly and transparently because some of it sounds potentially very positive, but other parts sound potentially damaging. But in the absence of transparency, you lose the value of both and add a whole helping of confusion, mistrust, and uncertainty. For founders that you'll need to rely on to build these products, this is not how you want to gain their trust. So in terms of technology and innovation, what has von der Leyen been transparent about? Well, in July, the president-elect put forward her policy priorities for tech when she advanced her candidacy. At the time, she outlined intentions to further the EU's work on promoting ethical artificial intelligence, establishing standards for 5G networks across Europe, and developing protocols for blockchain and quantum computing. In addition, she shared that she wanted to develop a, quote, joint cyber unit to speed up information sharing and protect Europe from digital threats. So in both of these leaks, as reported in Bloomberg and in Politico, on developing a somewhat technological sovereignty is certainly a new development and really quite a diversion from what she's outlined previously. So what does it all mean? And frustratingly, I think we'll just have to wait and see here. So, Andre, what do you think about this new development? Uh, that's a lot of stuff. Honestly, I would rather wait, and I don't think we should uh, wait necessarily for uh, von der Leyen to uh, say anything about it. I would uh, be more curious to hear some explanations uh, from uh, from Sylvia Goulard and uh, from Vestager herself about what their uh, what their more hands on plans are. Generally, I'm not that much against uh, the whole idea of digital sovereignty, quote unquote, just because it does seem like Europe has to come up with its own kind of way uh, to navigate uh, the uh, technology world right now, because we do have this. We, we have the US on one side, we have China on the other side. And yes, they both uh, uh, develop things that we don't necessarily have uh, uh, available in Europe, both in terms of software and hardware. Do you think that it's possible for Europe to develop a digital or technological sovereignty? This is kind of goes beyond software. That's here. another thing. It's hardware, infrastructure. Is it possible? I guess, I guess it depends. So, I mean, we do have a certain uh, uh, hardware potential, like we have ARM, for example, and things like that. And uh, in terms of infrastructure, again, uh, we, we, we have to do it one way or the other. And and kind of my, my take on that is what is the potential danger of kind of pointing out, well, we're just going to build all of our own stuff and then we don't have to deal with all of these other potential negative externalities. Is that positive? I mean, I'm not sh- so sure here. Um, and I think the lack of clarity is really the the difficult point for me here is that, you know, someone has leaked these documents and it is very clear there might be an agenda here. What does it mean? I'm not so certain. We are in the very early days with this new commission, so I wouldn't uh, be too alarmist about uh, the fact that we haven't uh, heard uh, a lot about the plans but I don't like the fact that uh, there was no response uh, to to the leaks. That that uh, that is definitely not a great sign. Yeah, 
agree with you there. I don't know. Let's just blame uh, the European bureaucracy here for now, because let, let's just say that they were not uh, uh, able to uh, approve uh, the response on time with their PR departments uh, in the European Commission, and uh, we uh, will uh, hear something uh, from them soon. <laughs> Right. It is time for an interview of the day, and uh, it's going to be a conversation with Carly Kind, the director of Ada Lovelace Institute, which I recorded recently in Copenhagen. Let us listen together, and we'll be back in a few minutes for recommendations. Hello, uh, this is Andrew Daigler reporting for Tech.eu from the Digital Front Runner Conference in Copenhagen, and now I have a chance to quickly catch up with... Uh, uh, Carly Kind, the director of uh, the Ada Lovelace Institute in the UK. Hey, Carly. Hi. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk today. So we don't really have much time, but still, let's just start uh, from the beginning. And uh, what is it that you're doing and what is Ada Lovelace Institute? Sure. So the Ada Lovelace Institute has recently been set up uh, with a remit to ensure that data and AI work for people in society. Essentially, that means that we're about making sure that the public's interest is represented in conversations about new technologies and technological developments and that uh, government and private sector ensure that technology and particularly AI is consistent with societal values. Right. Um, Ada Lovelace, can I tell you a little bit about her? So the, the institute is named after Ada Lovelace. She was, uh, she's widely regarded to be the first computer programmer. And in the 1840s, she wrote a, uh, an algorithm for, um, a, a conceptual machine that Charles Babbage had designed called the analytical machine, uh, the analytical engine, sorry. And she basically was one of the first people to see that computers would be able to do far more than just mathematical equations. Computers could one day, she said, write music or author books. And so uh, we named the Institute after her because she really looked into the future and saw how technology might change and improve society. Right. So is your work mostly focused on the UK itself where you're based or is it like pan-European uh, global? We absolutely have a global outlook. We think that these technologies are developing globally, so you can't just look at it in the context of one country. And But because we're based in the UK, it's easier for us to look at how like, particular policies might work there. Um, so we're going to use the UK as a kind of petri dish for thinking right. about some of these issues and then hopefully take them globally. So yes, with the recent uh, facial recognition uh, sort of scandals, you got your work cut out for you. Absolutely. Well, it's definitely been top of the public agenda in the UK over the summer. And uh, uh, there's a court case that's going to come down soon in, in the autumn, which will be a big decision about whether or not the police can keep using facial recognition. Have you been closely involved in all this? We've been following it from the perspective of what are, what does the public think about this? So we've just done a big piece of public attitudes research and we're going to be publishing that in a couple of weeks, which looks at what do the public think about facial recognition technology? Should the police use it? Should companies use it? Uh, do we need more protections? What safeguards are in place, et cetera? So we're really interested in not necessarily what the law says, but what the public think. Right. And what do you think would be the ways to implement uh, whatever you find is necessary to do? Um, I suspect that we are going to try, we're going to find that the public want there to be more restriction, more regulation of facial recognition technology, but that they 
want the police to use it when they think there's going to be a real benefit from that. So in order to unpack that, I think we need to do more tests and more trials. We need to figure out ways in which this technology can be used in discrete circumstances when there's a lot of protections in place and what laws do we need to make sure that there's no abuse, etc. And then I think we also need to work out how to make the tech better because actually there's many problems with it at the moment, accuracy, bias, discrimination, etc. So Hopefully some of that work will be able to take forward in terms of research. So are you going to advise the government on this? Yeah, I think that we'll probably be trying to um, put some policy recommendations in place about where regulations needed and how we might design a system where the public can input into how this stuff is regulated going forward. And we'd like to do something um, like set up what we're calling a citizens biometrics council, which would be a group of 50 or 60 members of the public that would come together regularly to talk about how the government should regulate this stuff. And that means that there'd be real public engagement, real public consultation in uh, how this new technology is going to be integrated into society. Right. And how big is the institute itself? Very small still. We're six people at the moment. So uh, we have kind of big aspirations and not that many people. But we're hoping to grow. We're really only um, a few months old, actually. And how are you funded? We're funded through an organization called the Nuffield Foundation, which is a philanthropic uh, foundation. And they've given us our first grant that will take us through the first five years of operation. And then we're hoping to get other funding from um, grants, trust and foundations and, and philanthropists as well. Now, looking at your own uh, website, I will just uh, do a little quote. Uh, you were writing that uh, your work, uh, I quote, focuses on the opportunities and challenges that arise at the intersection of human rights and technology. Okay, so I get what the challenges uh, would be. What are the opportunities? Well, uh, I think that if you look at communication technologies, for example, um, You know, it's easy to forget now how important social networks are, for example, in connecting communities, allowing uh, different groups to um, to find each other, um, uh, to, for example, enable um, community events and swapping and um, uh, uh, community sales and all these types of um, really important kind of social um, infrastructure building projects that happen through social media. We know where the media focuses a lot on the challenges and the problems with social media. And we know that very well now, disinformation, fake news, et cetera. Um, but uh, we can't forget that these things bring value to lots of people's lives as well. So how do we balance those two things? Um, what are the trade-offs that we might be willing to accept and what protections can we put in place? So I think that's one kind of set of examples. Another um, uh, potentially more far-off set of examples is around healthcare. So um, we know that AI uh, can be used really well in diagnostics, for example, at the moment. Um, and uh, that is dependent on um, there being a lot of research, a lot of data collected, and uh, it, it's also dependent on public-private partnerships. So now uh, enabling... In the UK, for example, the NHS, which is uh, the national health system, a huge employer, a huge generator of data to connect with startups, to connect with private sector um, bodies that are going to build new technology to work off that data. Um, so from the public's perspective, they want to see um, healthcare be improved by AI, but they don't want their data to be misused and abused. They don't want their data to be used for corporate profit. So how do we bridge that gap? What trade-offs are they willing to make and what protections can we put in place there?
You're talking now about uh, the stories with a deep mind, I suppose, right? For example, that's one way in which it can go really badly. And uh, in essence, that was just really naivety and uh, failure to think about how should we do this properly in a way that kind of respects the public's uh, privacy and, and data, protection of their data, but also enables the NHS, which only has the public's best interest at its heart, to innovate and to improve and uh, I think the DeepMind scandal is a bit of a shame because I think it's it's made everyone very wary now of those types of partnerships for good reason. Um, but there's no reason why they can't work, provided we put really strong protections in place. So one thing that um, many experts in this space are looking at at the moment is how can you share data sets in a way that protects privacy and ensures that that data is only used for particular uh um, means and how can you share that with the private sector so that they don't abuse it? Can you use things like data trusts, for example, which are um, managed by an independent body that then gets to decide who uses the data and how? And is that a way to make sure that there's like more public legitimacy and more public trust in these types of partnerships going forward? So I think exploring new ways to do that is really fundamentally important at this stage. Right. And uh, what do you think is the time frame until uh, this would be implemented? Good question. <laughs> um, well, my worry is that there's a lot of pressure to move ahead with the innovation, in particular in the health sector, and we haven't actually solved all those underlying problems yet. And I don't. There's lots of ideas out there, but nobody's really um, uh, kind of put in place the framework that you need to exist. So the sooner the better we work out how to share data in a way that supports research and supports innovation, but also protects privacy and protects other social values. I, th I think we need to do that. We need to kind of prioritize that bit, actually. And if we take the example of uh, DeepMind and the NHS, but of course there are many others, who is responsible? Great question. I think the NHS were the guardians of the data. So I, I think that they're first and foremost responsible. People hand over their data to the NHS in full trust that the NHS will do the right thing. And they didn't hand that data over thinking it was going to go to DeepMind. Um, but DeepMind itself also, I think, has a responsibility to um, foresee, uh, well, in, a, in fact, it's DeepMind who are the experts and it's DeepMind who are leading the NHS on these types of things as well. I think this is something you see quite often, which is tech companies are uh, proposing or essentially selling a product to a government entity. And um, they have the power in that relationship because they understand the technology. And in some respects, the government bodies have to rely in the private sector to be honest and truthful with them because they don't have the skills or the tools to interrogate the technology itself. So there's a power imbalance. And I think that that power imbalance means that there's a moral obligation on those companies to do the right thing by their customers who are the government agencies or their health system, etc. So I think the responsibility is shared. So do you think we need some sort of uh, new body that would examine this sort of data sharing agreements? Um, yeah, I think that that's one, way, that's one way to do it. I think when it comes to the health sector specifically, because the data is so sensitive and so important, I do think that there needs to be a comprehensive overarching approach for each country which says we want to support innovation in the health sector. We want to make data available to companies that want to build it, but it has to happen within this oversight framework. And here's the body that's going to oversee that. And here's all of the steps that you need to take in order to have those partnerships. 
sounds like a lot of work there. Yeah, well, I think it is a lot of work. And the problem is that we're so impatient to move ahead with this innovation that we're not willing to put the time in to build the infrastructure now. And that's really a shame, I think. And that's where we're hoping to kind of push on that. Perfect. Kali, thank you so much. This is it for my questions. And uh, good luck with everything you're doing. Enjoy the rest of your day. And I'm looking forward for the new publications coming from the Institute. Thank you very much. Hey, welcome back to the podcast of TechEU. We are back with the recommendations of this episode. And mine today is a blog post uh, by uh, Johan Brand, uh, the founder of Kahoot. And that's entitled The Cap Table Problem in the Nordics. Now, I think this kind of pieces appear every once in a while uh, on uh, on Medium and elsewhere, but it's a good thing as well, because uh, they talk about an extremely important thing for entrepreneurs and investors alike that they definitely need to uh, remember and uh, refresh on. Uh, once in once in a bit. Now, the general idea here, and I don't actually think that it's something that only exists in the Nordics, despite the title, uh, it's that having a screwed up cup table can bring your startup down, uh, which in turn means think about how much equity you as an entrepreneur give up in the early days, because wrong decisions made at that point will bite you in the back later on, most certainly. Same goes for investors, really, and uh, particularly angel investors. Just do not try to get too big of a stake in startups you're funding because it won't be beneficial for you in the end because it may very well lead to institutional investors passing on later rounds. So check out the full piece with a really good explanation and very well-made point and nice quotes and share it with people around you to whom it could be relevant because this is, as I said, something, something really important. Yeah, and it also really highlights the importance of a strong ecosystem and the importance of having a community where people talk and they share with one another. Too often you find in certain geographies that people are having these problems come up all the time. But the more that they share and they highlight, you know, this is something that happened to me, you probably want to go a different route with your company. That helps share the knowledge and move everyone um, ahead. And that's something that I think it's really great that he has written down this piece and that it's getting um, the attention that it deserves. But it really surprises me that even in well-developed ecosystems, seemingly well-developed well, well ecosystems like the Nordics, like uh, uh, some other places, you still would have this problem even after years and years and years of uh, different people just repeating these mantras of not do not give up too much equity, do not try to get too much equity as an investor. Yeah, and I think it is a problem of inexperience, which, which he does highlight, because you, every time you have new founders coming in and starting companies and trying to grow things beyond, and you have new angels that kind of have their, their own prerogatives as well, you have to continue continually sharing these lessons. I think we will continue to see this for a long time. When a freshly minted founder meets a freshly minted investor, it, it, sometimes it's great, but, uh, but sometimes it leads to things like this. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. As I always say. <laughs> right. So Natalie, you, you you got something really interesting as well to share today, don't you? Yeah. So I'm returning back to Bloomberg and they have a very interesting piece, which is called the elusive one billion fund that's rattled venture capital. And so this reference is a fund that both Andre and I, you know, we've been seeing this around the interwebs for some time, but both of us, we had never seen it out in the wild. 
this supposedly one billion fund run by a young American woman, and she's sitting somewhere in the Netherlands. We weren't entirely sure where. Um, we hadn't ever crossed paths with her in person. Um, and this woman is named Ellie Cachet, and the firm is called Cachet Capital. Um, I think that's how you say it. it. Might be pronouncing it wrong. But I've been kind of critical of her writing in the past of what I've seen of it, especially considering that some of it has been spread very kind of broadly and freely around the ecosystem, kind of her views about why the European venture landscape is so different from America and also some of her very pointed critiques um, about the startup and funding environment here. And uh, from the first time I became aware of this firm, something just didn't seem totally right to me. And we've had a number of conversations about it, but thankfully Bloomberg has the budget, time and resources to do a bit more digging. And what they pulled up is really quite a juicy story of some of the questionable things that are going on here. It's like the existence of this one billion fund. Is it actually out there. And it really reinforces the importance of doing due diligence with whom you work with and that you can't always go off the reputation and network alone. Um, it's a really good read. I don't want to give the story away. Um, so I encourage you to have a look at the link. And uh, about due diligence, like it is important, of course, but still I can't say that I can blame uh, the funds and people who expected uh, the money uh, because there was quite a bit in place to believe in. Yeah. Anyway, I will leave you with this uh, sort of uh, cryptic remark. You will understand <laughs> what I mean when you read this. <laughs> now it's time for us to wrap it up for today. This is it for this episode. I do hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you, Andri. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.